morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We're going to begin a study this morning in the Epistle of Jude. You heard of that, right? It's in your Bible. My study of Genesis 6 really kind of piqued my interest in this little book, so I just thought I was planning on starting the Gospel of John today. But a couple of weeks ago, I kind of derailed that and I said, well, I want to do a verse-by-verse look at the Epistle of Jude. And it's only 25 verses, so it shouldn't take us more than a year to get through this, all right? <clears throat> Before we begin to look at the actual text of this short epistle, I want to do somewhat of an introduction here. Uh, J. Daryl Charles wrote this, The message and world of the epistle of Jude are strangely unfamiliar to the modern reader. Even among students of the New Testament, this unfamiliarity is conspicuous. One is hard-pressed to find a single monograph which deals with the exegetical or theological problems raised in this letter. You know, Jude, like I said, only has 25 verses, so it's a really quick read, and yet it's one of the least often studied books of Scripture. It's the fourth shortest book in the New Testament. Second John, Third John, and Philemon are shorter. Jude is a letter written to a church, and you're going to find out there's a lot of different ideas about who wrote this, where it was written from, who it's written to, but I think it's possibly a letter written to the church in Ephesus, and it's dealing with false teachers who threatened the orthodoxy of the original apostles' message. The church addressed in this letter had already heard the apostles' original message, They believed it, they accepted it. However, they had not received any new revelation for some time. And the church members were waiting for Yeshua, but were really unclear how to live in a time of change and challenge without some new guidance. And false teachers who claimed to have new revelations from a higher source infiltrated the church, causing division and conflict as they attempted to replace the original apostles' message. Now, these certain persons, as Jude calls them, who have crept in unnoticed, are people who pervert grace. All right? That's very important. That's what this thing is about. There's there's a perversion of grace going on. They taught that they were no longer limited by the ethical teachings of Christ and could live any way they wanted to live without sinning. In essence, they preached that their new spiritual revelation they were receiving replace the message of the original apostles. So Jude's heretics, or apostates, were turning the grace of God into an excuse for flagrant immorality. Look what Jude says in verse 4. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Christ. Now, I want you to understand that Jude is an epistle that has to do primarily not with doctrinal apostasy, although that is here, but primarily with moral apostasy. In other words, the apostasy that Jude is concerned about is a moral apostasy. It's a departure from the faith in a moral sense. They're still saying, yeah, we believe in Christianity, we believe in this stuff, but they are living in an ungodly manner. 
Now, I said that Jude's audience, I believe, was probably the church of Ephesus. Which is interesting, because we just finished that letter, so we have a little background there. Notice what Paul had to say to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He calls the Ephesian elders together because he wants to speak to them. He says, be on guard for yourselves, talking again to the elders, and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God. Now, we recently talked about that word, shepherd, poimain, and what they're supposed to do. Shepherd has to do with leading and feeding. Primarily, this is a feeding thing. They're to give them the Word of God. Shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. And Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among... So he... He's warning them, these elders. Listen, after I leave, there's savage wolves that are going to come in among you. Again, he's talking to the elders. So he's referring to in the eldership, there's going to be these people come in among the elders, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, again, referring to the elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. So Paul calls for these Ephesian elders to come to him. He wants to warn them of something that was beginning to happen at that moment and was going to come in more fruition in the future. Warning them of this apostasy. Now you can see from the Acts passage that the apostle is not simply interested in the doctrinal side of things, although that is mentioned, but he is very concerned about the wolves who have come in to the flock, and he says, and are drawing away disciples after them. In other words, it's kind of a moral determination that is determining the actions of the wolves who come in, in the midst of the Ephesian church there. What Paul warned of is what Jude says was now happening. Jude was writing to the first century saints. We've got to understand this. We always need to keep this in mind when we're reading the New Testament. He's not writing to us. He's writing to first century saints who are living in the transition between the Old and New Covenants. But I think what he has to say is applicable to us today. A postmodern rejection of absolute right and wrong for ethical relativism, where the truth is flexible and sin is questionable, challenges the modern church in the same way that those apostates were challenging the church in Jude's day. The church today, overall, is weak and compromising and tolerant and shallow. I could go on and on, but you get the point, right? It's unwilling largely to give biblical truth its rightful place and certainly disinterested, if not outright opposed, to going to war to protect the truth. Truth doesn't matter today to people. They don't really care. You know that. As Bereans, you try to share it. and People always say, what does this matter? Why does eschatology matter? And you know my response is always the same. Truth matters. And if truth matters, then we got to figure out what the truth is. And we have to study our Bibles so we can figure that out. 
The church today just seems very to have very little interest in defending the truth against the assaults that come against it. And I think there's a lack of serious theology. There's a lack of serious exegetical, and by that I mean verse by verse, word by word, study of the living Word of God. There's a lack of it. I hear from people all the time, you know how far, hard it is to try to find a church that teaches the Bible? Why would that be hard? Why would that be a novel idea to teach the Bible? What is the purpose of the church? We're to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And we can't do that if we're not using the truth. But the church today doesn't want that. They want three points in a poem. They want to feel good. They want to be uplifted and you know told that God's on their side and He has only wonderful things planned for them and He wants them rich and He wants them healthy and all this good stuff. That's what people want to hear today. And I don't think the church is far different than Jude's day. And what happens when you have a lack of theology, when you have a lack of interest in systematic book-by-book, verse-by-verse knowledge of the Word of God, is that after a period of time, the church departs from the living God. Its anchor's gone. It's got no way to know what's right and what's wrong when it leaves the Word of God. So Jude's solution, I think, remains as viable today as it was in that first century. I think we're facing some of the exact same problems, especially dealing with morality. The church today is immoral. We've left the faith in the sense of morality, of following godliness. You know, I mean... We talk about modesty today. I don't think that anybody has even a clue what that is. Make fun of the Muslims. Would to God we wore burqas. Not we, men, but. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's hard to say they're not modest. You know, but we've redefined, we've dumbed down modesty to, you know, it's, I'll get off that right now, okay? Let's talk about the letter of Jude, all right? The structure of this letter is very poetic. Jude displays a remarkable love for triplets. He writes using triads, thoughts expressed in threes, and he keeps going over three, 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 three. He does this four. He, there's 14 triads in this book, and it's only 25 verses. Why does he? Why is everything in triads? Well, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, and he is just hammering this home triad after triad after triad. Jude's letter is unique for the way he quotes from another letter of Scripture. Jude quotes no less than 13 times from the letter of 2 Peter. Matter of fact, if he had quoted any more, Jude would have been called 3 Peter. Alright? He just keeps quoting it. Now, it's really hotly debated whether Peter's second letter or Jude's epistle is earlier. And, you know, you can come up with an opinion on it, but I'll tell you, you're not going to be able to prove it, all right? Consequently, which writer drew from the other? You know, that's the debate. Did Peter quote Jude? Did Jude quote Peter? It's quite evident either that one quoted the other or they both quoted from a common source, and we don't really know, all right? Jude is the only author of Scripture to quote directly from the apocryphal literature which are the ancient books of wisdom, often portrayed as inspired texts. Jude quotes from a book called The Assumption of Moses, and he quotes from Enoch. Now, the use of these sources has caused some to reject Jude from the Christian canon. They say Jude shouldn't even be in there because he's quoting these books that aren't part of the canon. For example, Jerome wrote, because Jude derives a testimony from the book of Enoch, 
which is apocryphal, it is rejected by some. However, <laughs> here's the other side of it. Others identify the presence of first Enoch and Jude as an evidence that Enoch should be included in the canon. Alright? Tertullian wrote, we ought to accept the book of Enoch as canonical because it is quoted by the apostle Jude. Now let me note, let me, I want you to notice something here. Who does he say wrote this? He says the apostle Jude. Now hang on to that. We'll come back to that and we'll discuss that. There's a debate. Everything about this book is debated. Alright? So you got one person saying uh, Jude shouldn't be in there because he quotes, you know, pseudepigrapha. And you got another guy saying, well, the pseudepigrapha should be canonized because Jude quotes it. So which direction are you going to go there, all right? I think Jude's decision to incorporate quotes from the Jewish apocrypha writings causes some Christians to squirm and ask whether those books are therefore, should we consider them inspired? Should we, you know, what do we do? I, I, my personal opinion is, if you got an author of an inspired, the inspired word of God quoting from these books, these books have some significance. Now, they're not canonical. I don't think they're inspired. I don't think we should count them along with the inspired text, but I think we should realize their importance. Jude quotes them. He also alludes to them. So does Peter. So do other writers allude to this text. So it's important that we understand what's going on here. Another interesting thing about Jude is that whenever he refers to the Tanakh, and he does it frequently, the text that is before him is not the Septuagint. He doesn't quote from the Septuagint. The Greek text, he uses the Hebrew text. Alright? When he quotes, it's from the Hebrew text. So, Jude, whoever he is, is a Hebrew man. But a man who comes from a background of the Apocrypha Jewish Christianity. The Apocalyptic Jewish Christianity, I'm sorry. Jude contains at least 15 words not found anywhere else in the New Testament. So there's some interesting stuff here. Now, the beginning of the New Covenant age is described in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, right? And the end of the Old Covenant age is dealt with in Jude, which is often called the Acts of the Apostates. Acts describes the deeds and teaching of the men of God through whom Christ began to build His church, and then Jude, the last epistle, relates the deeds and teachings of the apostates who will do everything they can to destroy that truth. Jude is the only book in the Bible entirely devoted to disgusting, discussing apostasy. And it is disgusting, but he is discussing apostasy. And in spite of how short it is, Jude has a fairly decent attestation to patristic literature. Alright, there are possible allusions to it in Clement of Rome. Shepherd of Hermas, Barnabas, the Didache, Polycarp alludes to it, the Mertorian Canon mentions it, as does Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian comments on its use in Enoch, Origen speaks of it, uh, Didymus the Blind defended its authenticity. Over and over these people are talking about and quoting from this work. You know, it's really only as time progressed that doubts about its authenticity or its canonicity became articulated, and principally because of the use of the pseudepigraphal material in the book. So people, you know, they see him quoting that and they say, that's not good, you know, Jude shouldn't be in this canon. Let's look at the first verse. We're only going to get through about half of this verse today. 
That's why I figured it would take us a year to get through the whole book, 25 chapters. <laughs> Jude 1a, all right. Jude! That's as far as we'll get today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> a bondservant of Yeshua the Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Yeshua the Christ. As you study this letter, you'll notice there's a consensus among scholars that the author, the date, and the consumption, and the composition and audience of this book are difficult to clearly identify. That's one agreement you're going to find about Jude. You're going to find that everybody agrees it's really difficult to nail these things down. All right, so with that in mind, let's see if we can look at who the author is here. He says Jude, all right? His name here, the name that's written on this letter is actually Yehuda. All right, it's Hebrew, Yehuda. In Greek, it would be Iodas or Judas. The name Jude or Judas are exactly the same in Greek. It's just a different English spelling. This name is derived from the name Judah, which was the name of one of Jacob's sons, later one of the tribes of Israel. As we learn in Genesis 29-35, when Leah bore the child, she called his name Yehuda. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore, she named him Yehuda. Then she stopped bearing. So, I think we can come to the conclusion from this that Yehuda means thankful. It means to praise Yahweh, to offer thanksgiving to Him. Now, if, as I said, Jude, Judas, exact same spelling in the Greek, exact same word in the Greek. Why we got two different words in English? Why Jude and Judas? Why didn't they call this Judas? Any hints on that? Did Judas bring out kind of any negative connotation to anybody? Huh? <laughs> do you know anybody named Judas? But do you personally know anybody named Judas? You know anybody that names their dog Judas? Or their animals Judas? People, they don't use that name, okay? They, we, why? Because it's associated with Judas Iscariot. And so we don't, we want to disassociate that, you know, from it. And so the, the writers did the same thing. You know, they came to this letter and they say, Yehuda, um, he was a traitor. We can't use that name. Let's just call it Jude. All right. And so that's what they decided to do. They just, they're trying to distance themselves from Judas Iscariot. <coughs> Excuse me. Isn't it interesting that a book written about apostasy bears the name of the all-time apostate? I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> The writer's name, Yehuda, that's become a cursed name. Alright, it certainly has. So, we know his name was Yehuda. We know he was a Hebrew. He was the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, we know that the writer of this epistle was a Hebrew. Okay, we can probably narrow that down pretty surely. Who was this Jude, though? Which one? You know, there's several men named Jude or Judas or Judah in the New Testament. Two of them are apostles, Right? There's Judas Iscariot and Judas not Iscariot. Okay. <laughs> in Acts 9-11, there's a Judas of Damascus. And then there's Judas Barsabas. According to Acts 15, Judas Barsabas was a leading man in the early church who with Silas carried the decision of the Jerusalem council to Antioch. So there's Judas of Damascus who helped Ananias find Saul after his conversion. Then you have Judas Iscariot who is the apostate. Our text tells us that Judas had a brother named James. So that helps nail it down, right? Whoever this guy is, he's got a brother named James. 
Because of this, some say that the Jude who wrote the book was the half-brother of Yeshua, because Yeshua had a brother named Jude, and he had a brother named James. So they just say, well, that must be him, right? Well, look at Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So there Yeshua's got a brother, James, and a brother, Judas. They're half-brothers, all right? So many theologians see that Judas here, the Lord's half-brother, is the one who's writing the epistle and he's the brother of James. We see the same thing in Mark six three, very similar. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. All right. Here again, we got James and Judas. So this could be the brother of the Lord. I mean, that seems to fit with what Scripture says. Or this may be Jude who was one of the apostles, as Tertullian believed. He called him Jude the Apostle. We know there was an apostle, Jude, who wasn't Iscariot, wasn't a bad guy. There's two apostles named Judas. If we turn to Luke 6, we get a rundown of their names of the apostles. Look at uh, verse 14 of Luke 6. Simon, whom also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zealots, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. You know, every time Judas gets named, you know, you know there's, he was the traitor. He was the traitor, all right? So never too, from, you know, too good a recommendation there of him. So we have here Judas, the brother of James, all right? The apostle is called, you know, Judas, the brother of James. Now let's look at Acts one um, thirteen. It says, and when they were come in, they went up to the upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, Zealots and Judas, the brother of James. So again, we see Judas here is the brother of James. Now, did you notice that the last two texts I quoted were a little different than I normally quote? Did you catch that? What's different? See the bottom where it says Acts one thirteen. It's King James, all right? You got to catch that, people. When people put verses in there, that's why I always have a reference when I quote a verse. I want you to know what I'm quoting from because it does make a difference, all right? I'm quoting here from the King James. And the reason I'm quoting from the King James is because other translations say Judas, the son of James. But the King James says brother. Now, there's a difference between being a son and being a brother. So, who's right? Are the King James translators right? Or the New American, English Standard Version, all those guys write. How do the translators determine if a man is a brother or the son of another individual who's mentioned? You say, well, it just says in the text, he's the brother, he's the son, right? No, did any of your texts have italics there? Because it's not in the Bible. Uh, for example, let's look at Matthew 10, 2 and 3. Now, the name of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, the brother the brother and James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. All right, here we got James, the son of Zebedee. Now, how did they know that he is the son of Zebedee when in the original text, the Greek here, it just says of Zebedee, James of Zebedee. 
That's all the text says. So how do they determine if he's a son or a brother? Well, down here it says James, the son of Alphaeus. How do they know that James was a son when the word son is not in the text at all? Well, there's a certain Greek construction that's found here. In verse 2, we see James, and we see him standing in a certain relationship to Zebedee. In the Greek, we would find the name James, and then we find a definite article, ho. Then we find another definite article, follow that, which would be tau. And that's in the, the second de- definite article in the genitive case. You with me so far? <laughs> Alright, here's the bottom line. There's two definite articles in front of the name Zebedee. Therefore, we would read it literally like this. James, the one of the Zebedee. The translators realize that this is saying that James is the one, the son of Zebedee. The genitive is relating this one who is James back to Zebedee. Hang on with me for a minute here. Okay, and we'll move on. This is kind of important here. This is the Greek construction in verse 3 of Matthew 10 also. James, the son of Alphaeus. We have the English, but in the Greek we have James, and then we have a definite article followed by another definite article in a genitive case in front of the name Alphaeus. It's James, the one of the Alphaeus. So we see that whenever we find this kind of construction, it is saying that the one man is the son of the other man whom he has begotten from. This James was begotten of Alphaeus, and the other James was begotten of Zebedee, and so on. All right, And actually, in every case that I looked up, where we don't have the actual word son found in the text, this construction is there, the two definite articles, except for Acts 1.13, where we have James, the son of Alphaeus. But the definite article is missing there. However, since the translators have this verse in Matthew, they did have the definite article standing in that kind of relationship between James and Alphaeus, and they knew that he's the son of Alphaeus, and they translated it thus there, because they have that translation elsewhere. Now, looking at Judas, let's turn to Luke 6.16. It says, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right. Here in the Greek, we have the name Judas, and then we have the name James. And in the text, there's no definite article. There's nothing. It just says, Judas, James, in the Greek. Look at Acts 1.13. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, of Je- Judas, the son of James. Now here we find Judas, the son of James. Once again, in the Greek, we have the name Judas, and then we have the name James immediately following, no definite article. And since there's no other place where the definite article was used to indicate a father-son relationship between Judas and James, the KJV translators follow the guideline that there's not, that he's not a son, but he is a brother. Jude, the brother of James. So, if the King James is properly translated, then Jude the Apostle also has a brother named James. So what we have now is we got two Judes, with brothers named James. So it doesn't help us a whole lot, alright? We got Yeshua's half-brother Jude. He's got a brother named James. And the Apostle Jude also has a brother named James. So which one is it? Well, I don't know. We've got to do some reasoning here and try to figure it out. If, the, if Jude 
who wrote this epistle is the half-brother of Yeshua, then Jude is the only book in the New Testament Scripture sourced by someone who was not considered an apostle. Now, we know that neither Luke nor Mark were apostles, but many believe that Luke's material was sourced by Paul and Mark's was sourced by Peter. So they have apostolic backing behind them. All right? All other letters were written directly by apostles. So that would mean that apostles were the source and the content of all New Testament books except Jude. That's possible. Okay? They might not know his source. They might not know exactly. So that, that is a possibility. All right? But that being said, most scholars today believe that the book was written by Jude, the half-brother of Yeshua. See, if it was written by an apostle, why wouldn't he say Jude, an apostle of our Lord? Paul and Peter both say that. Why wouldn't he? Why would the apostle Jude say that he was the brother of James? That carries absolutely no weight. Who is James, the apostle Jude's brother? Who is he? Anybody know? We don't know. Do you know anything about him? No. Who was he? So why say, hey, I'm the brother of James? Just say you're an apostle, then we'll know who you are. Okay? That doesn't add any weight. But if Jude, the brother of our Lord, wrote this, then saying that he was the brother of James adds a lot of weight. Do you know who the Lord's half-brother James was? He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. So saying he's your brother, now, oh, okay, James is your brother? Yeah, everybody knows James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Okay, that adds some weight to it. Now, as I said earlier, it's really hard to be dogmatic here. There's also a growing number of scholars today who regard Jude as pseudepigraphal. Meaning, a pseudepigraphal writing is a writing that it's falsely named. In other words, it's, it has a name on it, but that the person whose name's on it didn't really write the book. That's why it's called pseudepigraphal. It's a falsely named. They use a name with some clout to throw up there, so you say, hey, we know this guy. It's an important name, right? If you're writing a pseudepigraphal work, are you going to put Jude on it? What kind of clout does that give your writing? Jude? <laughs> That's nothing. I mean, why use that pseudonym? It doesn't make any sense at all. So in my opinion, that's a huge hurdle for this to be a pseudepigraphal writing. Now, why would anybody use an obscure name Jude unless it's a genuine work and you're Jude? You know, that would make sense then to use that name. And to make matters worse, he doesn't identify himself as Jude, the brother of the Lord. And if it's pseudepigrapha, why wouldn't he say, I'm the brother of the Lord? Again, adding more weight to it. I think that designation would at least elevate Jude by some virtue of his relation to Yeshua. So consequently, a pseudepigraphal piece is almost ruled out since those arguments to me are pretty strong. You don't, you don't use the name Jude and not connect yourself with the Lord if it's pseudepigraphal. But I think some people want to do that because they just want to remove Jude because they're like, they're not comfortable with Jude. It goes places they don't like. It quotes books they don't like. So they just want to kind of distance themselves from it. So in my opinion, I think, I think for those reasons, that the writer of this epistle is Jude, the half-brother of Yeshua. Alright? That's who I believe wrote this. But here's the bottom line here. God is ultimately the author of this book. Alright? 
And we need to keep that in mind as we're reading through the Word of God. Jude, whichever Jude it was, writes this epistle under inspiration. And ultimately, does it really matter whether Peter or Jude or Paul or anyone wrote it? Because we know it's inspired by the Lord. He's the author of the book. The Word of God comes directly from the infinite mind of God. And that's why we read all Scripture is inspired by God. God used these men. Now, when we talk about this, some people believe in what's called mechanical dictation. In other words, these guys sat down and they had a quill and their hand just started moving. They didn't, wow, look at what I'm writing. That's cool. Wow, I didn't know that. You know, And they're surprised by it. No, that's not it at all, all right? God used the personalities, the experiences, the life of these men, but He worked through them and he and they said exactly what he wanted them to say. That's the inspired by God. And because it's inspired by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Word of God equip you for whatever it is you need to do. But again, we're back to it's the Word of God that equips you. It's not three points in a poem. Alright? It's not nice stories. It's not how to have a happy marriage. It's not how to handle your finances. It's none of those things that the church is dealing with today. It's the Word of God. We also see this in 2 Peter. He says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. These men are being borne along by the Spirit of God as they write. So whoever the human author was, this is the Word of Yahweh, the living God. That's what's important to us. You know, debate all day long who was the real author, who really wrote it. It's inspired. I believe it's inspired because it's in the canon. I just take the view that the canon is what God wants us to have. The ones in it are inspired, the ones not are not, because God sovereignly brought us what He wanted us to have. Alright. Another debatable question. When was the letter written? The fact that suggestions of scholars regarding the date for this writing vary between 60 A.D. to 140 A.D. is sufficient reminder that how much of this is guesswork and nothing else, okay? My best guess is I think this was written around A.D. 67, just before the fall. I think that to say that any part of the Word of God is written after A.D. 70, but the authors failed to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the sacrifices and the wiping out of their people, that's kind of crazy, all right? You don't write about something and not mention that after the fact. Alright, so 8067 is a good guess. Alright, especially because of what's going on, because of the apostasy that is happening here. Alright. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Yeshua the Christ. Now this is a very common introduction. Many of the epistles have this type of introduction where the writer of the epistle will introduce as a servant of Yeshua or an apostle of Yeshua. Bondservant here is from the Greek word doulos. It meant slave. I think, you know, I don't know, bondservant, maybe it's not strong enough for our for us. Slave is probably good. That's what it meant in classical Greek. It was a word used to describe slaves who had no rights. I think we understand that. We think of slaves that way, right? Their master owned them. Their only justification for being allowed to live was that they fulfilled the wishes of their owners. You know, because slaves were considered tools. If the tool doesn't work, what do you do? You get rid of it, all right? So that's how they viewed this thing. 
A doulos was normally has been seen as a reference to a bond slave, someone without legal standing or personal claims, someone owned by another. And since that's what doulos was in the Greco-Roman society, and it makes sense. And most Bible students see the meaning and they'd say a Christian has no rights. You know, we're just slaves. We don't have any rights at all. But the term doulos has at least two meanings in the Hebrew Scripture. In the Septuagint, it used to translate the Hebrew word eved. An examination of the Hebrew text of the Tanakh, particularly that of Isaiah, shows that eved was a title for pious men. Eved is used of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, the servant of Yahweh. And the essential difference between the Hebrew slave who is sold into the possession of another and the slave of Yahweh is not merely that of status of the owner. The essential difference is one of covenant. The Septuag- in the Septuagint, doulos described a relationship within the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel. This is also the case in the New Testament, where the context normally shows it to describe a relationship within the new covenant which Yahweh has established through Christ. This covenant use does not speak of someone who has no rights, but of someone who is showered with honor and privilege as a result of being a slave of the living God. So, there's a huge difference here. You know, some Christians that just view doulos, I'm a doulos, I, I have nothing, I'm just to serve God, whatever He wants. But when you understand that, you know, the doulos is showered with honor, because he is the slave of Yahweh. And we see this in Isaiah 42.1. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and will bring forth justice to the nation. Servant here is Eved, which is a slave. The status of slave confers on the church and her members the highest honor, and they are called to serve the living God. Following the Exodus type, Israel was Pharaoh's slave. But through the redemption, she becomes Yahweh's slave. And the same is true of believers. By faith, we have become slaves, servants of Yeshua, the living God. Your slavery to Christ results in, you you say, well, you become a slave, you're just menial servant, you got to do whatever you're told to do. Listen, let let me tell you as a Christian, when you become a servant, a bondservant of Yahweh, what it means. Slavery to Christ results in right standing with Yahweh. You're in union with Him who satisfied eternal justice on your behalf. So your union with Him results in full acquittal of your sins and God's declaration of righteousness. You get that full acquittal of your sins. Past sins, present sins, Future sins, full acquittal. They're wiped out because you are standing in Christ. That is your position. Christ accomplished all that was necessary for you to be declared righteous by God. Let me show you this. Philippians chapter 2, uh, 6 and 7. Who although He existed in the form of God. Now speaking of Christ, He existed in the form of God. Which refers to the possession of of the essential attributes of deity. He was God. But verse 7 says, taking the form of a bond slave, a doulos, and being made in the likeness of men. He takes the form, the slavery of a person who has submitted himself to a master in order to do his will. So Christ existed as God. He became a servant, a slave. 
And according to verse 5 of this same text, and here's where it gets important, we, you and I, are to have the same attitude as Christ. He was in the form of God. He took on the form of a bondservant. Watch verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. The word attitude here is from the Greek phroneo. It means to think, to exercise the mind, to have an opinion or attitude. The position of the pronoun this is emphatic and follows it. The exhortation reaches back to verses 3 and 4 for its definition. The attitude that's being called for, the attitude talked about throughout this whole text, is one of humility. Look at verses 3 and 4. These are the some of the greatest verses on practical Christianity. If you want to do some memory work, memorize these because these should control everything we do. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Well, that cuts out a lot of our stuff we do. What do we do with all the rest of our time? He says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. You do that with some people, right? You got some people that you regard more important than you. But that list is a lot shorter than the ones on the other side that you regard yourself as much more important than, right? Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. That's what we do. But also for the interest of others. Here Paul calls believers to have the mind, the attitude, the thinking of Christ who put everybody before himself. This whole chapter, as I said, is about humility. What is humility? Humility is first, and you'll be able to tell if you have it once I describe it, okay? It's first a feeling toward God that he has absolute rights over your life. That's humility, because you see yourself in a proper perspective. God's in charge. He's the creator. He has absolute right over me. He can do with you whatever he pleases, and whatever he pleases is absolutely okay with you. Because he's God and you're not. It's a spirit of utter yielding and submitting to the Lord as master. See, the humble person sees himself as clay in the potter's hand. He sees himself as a servant of Yahweh. Now, when I talk about submitting to Christ, I think most of us think in relation to the Word of God. But let me tell you what I think is most difficult, where we struggle the most. Submitting to God in the area of providence. What do I mean by providence? Everything that happens in your life. Submitting to the sovereign God in that circumstance. That's where our difficulty is. We don't like our circumstances, so we have a problem. We grumble. We complain. We are anger. We get angry with God. We argue with God. Why did you let this happen? And I think of Job. And God says, who are you to reply? Who is this ignoramus questioning me? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. He just questioned Job. Come on, Job, explain it to me. Where were you when I created everything? And what I see there is God saying, I'm creator, you're not. So as creator, I can do whatever I want to do. And if you don't like it, you can leave my universe. Now that's really not an option for us. So the other option is line up under the authority of God. And that's humility. It's You're in a right position. You're not questioning and arguing with God because you understand who He is. 
But today the church has reduced God so low, He is not the sovereign God of the universe. He's a bellhop. He's a cosmic genie. He's a servant of the church. And we snap our fingers and come on, boy, you better get this done for me. I need health. I need wealth. God, where are you? I get, get this done. Take care of it. I'm not comfortable here. I mean, it's really blasphemous is what it is. So when I ask you the question, whose slave are you? <clears throat> As a Christian, your response should be, I'm a slave of Yeshua the Christ. The apostles saw themselves as slaves of Christ. We see Jude said it. He says, and now, in Acts 4.29, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, in other words, Lord, we belong to you, may speak your word with all confidence. We're yours, Lord. Here's what's interesting. The apostles also saw themselves as slaves, bondservants of the believers. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Yeshua as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Yeshua's sake. What does that tell you? We're bonds, we're servants of one another. That's what Philippians 2 was all about. You don't look at your own interests, you look at the interests of others because you're a servant of others also. Since the apostles were examples to all believers, we should all see ourselves as slaves of one another. Look at 1 Peter 2, 13-16. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the king is one in authority or the governors are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. We are all to see ourselves as slaves of Yahweh. Notice what Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 6. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, he's saying you're either obeying sin, which results in death. Are you obeying righteousness or obedience, which results in righteousness? So Paul's laying down here an axiomatic principle. And that is that we become the slaves of whoever we choose to obey. All believers are servants of Yeshua once they become saved, once they trust Him. A believer who is here on earth is not here simply to find his own pleasure. Do you understand that? And this is the, again, this is where the church is at. It's like God saved you because He wants your best life. As Joel Osteen would put it. You know, you're here, the, your best life now. My best life now is serving God with all my heart and realizing my position in relationship to Him. But He didn't put us here just to have a good time. We're not here to see how much we can enjoy ourselves in life unless that enjoyment comes from God. And I think John Piper is right when he talks about Christian hedonism. Hedonism is pleasure. Okay, you get your pleasure. Well, Christian hedonism is you get your pleasure from God. And that's pleasure way beyond anything the world can begin to offer us. But we are so dumbed down in the church again that we, we reduce God to something He's not. We're not here to find out just how many things we can purchase. How easy we can make our lives. How comfortable we can be. That's not what a servant of Christ should be aiming for. That's not what we should be thinking about or trying to achieve in our lives but rather our goal should be to live in service of Yahweh and serving His people. We're bond servants. That's what Jude saw himself as. 
I'm a bondservant. The apostles saw that. That's what we're called to be as Christians. Bondservants of Christ. Alright, we didn't get too far today. <clears throat> we'll come back and pick it up next week. While the modern church might not face exactly the same opponents that I think the Jude did, I think the modern church faces the danger of certain persons who have slipped into the church and caused conflict and division and false teaching and a very destructive lifestyle. Jude warns that these dangers are with us. And I think they're with us today. Just as they were with the people to whom Jude wrote. Because postmodernism shares many of the same features of Jude's opponents. And its effect on the modern church is pervasive and it's rampant. And we need to be on our guard theologically. We need to be on our guard morally. Because we are here as bond servants of the Christ. We represent Him. We bear the image of God. And as image bearers, when people look at us, they should see God. And problem is, the church has become so immoral today that when they look at us, they don't see God at all. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to just begin to study this Marvelous little epistle, Lord. I pray that you would teach us from it. I pray again that you'd give us the heart of Bereans that we would not buy into or grab a hold of anything I say without studying it, researching it, being a Berean, doing your, their own homework, Lord. Give us that heart always of Bereans in everything, not just in the scripture, Lord. May we examine everything before we buy into teaching. Lord, I thank you for the freedoms we have here in this country, the freedom to study, the freedom to learn to dig on our own. Lord, I pray that you teach us as we work through this letter. Amen.